0: Alright, you guys are having fun? Alright, for the next half, half, half hour, you're going to have so much fun. It's unbelievable. Just be ready, alright? We're not going to dim the lights. No one's sleeping. Alright, so we're going to talk about uh, pneumonia. You guys already know this. This is a very common condition. You guys see this firsthand. Uh, this condition is mostly taken care of by emergency physicians and primary care physicians in hospitals from, uh, basically from the acute start. Actually, when you look at the guidelines, is this sound okay? I just feel like there's a... is this sound okay in the back? All right. Um, actually, when you look at the guidelines, the guidelines are by American Thoracic Society and Infectious Disease Society of America are really directed towards uh, the physicians that see these patients on, uh, on the first encounter. There's various classifications. Community-acquired pneumonia cap, hospital-acquired pneumonia... Uh, HAP occurs. Basically, the definition is that it occurs more than 48 hours after admission. Ventilator-associated pneumonia. It's a pneumonia that occurs after 48 hours of endotracheal intubation. And we have this concept of healthcare-associated pneumonia. We're not going to be discussing hospital-acquired or ventilator-associated pneumonia because majority of you are not treating this condition. So we're going to concentrate on CAP and HCAP. Now, what is HCAP? Seriously, where did that come from, right? So there's this broad definition, this really broad definition. Hospitalized for more than two days, within 90 days of infection, residing in a nursing home or long-term care facility, attended at hospital hemodialysis center, received IV antimicrobial therapy, and if you can ever figure this out, family member with a multidrug-resistant pathogen. It's a very broad spectrum definition, and what the guidelines are recommending you to do is that whenever you have a patient that fits into the HCAP, you need to treat them for unusual or resistant organisms, and that means MRSA, pseudomonas, and some studies have also advocated looking at ESBLs, extended-spectrum beta-lactamase-producing enterobacteriaceae. Should we do that? Is this the right thing? Well... They asked a bunch of experts about this. They posed this question. They said, patient from a healthcare-associated, non-hospital environment who develops a pneumonia has HCAP. good number of people did not fully agree with this statement. When we think of HCAP, the microbiology of HCAP, where does that come from? The microbiology of HCAP is extrapolated from hospital-associated pneumonia and ventilator-associated pneumonia. But these people are quite different from the patient that was recently in a hospital, or resides in a long-term care facility. There is a spectrum of patients that reside in a long-term care facility. Not everybody in a long-term care facility is non-ambulatory, is always in the bed, and has a bunch of tubes, every orifice of their body. That's not the case. Should we treat a patient that's in a long-term care facility who's ambulatory and basically has dementia and the family cannot take care of him, the same as somebody who is non-ambulatory, has had stroke, bet written, and has every tube in the body. It's should not, we should not think of it that way. Another question. Initial empiric therapy for HCAP is the same for hospital-acquired pneumonia. Majority of the people had reservation and did not agree with the statement. Patients should receive empiric therapy for MRSA at the time of HCAP diagnosis. Significant disagreement with this statement. And these are the experts that are answering these questions. Studies have looked at this. With respect to microbial prediction of HCAP, this is a retrospective study of 600 patients or so. Specificity for HCAP definition for uh, presence of resistant pathogen, meaning MRSA, pseudomonas, or ESBLs, who is about 50%, in this misclassified one third of the patients. All variables also have various prediction models. For example, if you score if you give them points, the prevalence varies. A patient who is on hemodialysis is at risk for MRSA, but not necessarily at risk for pseudomonas. A patient who has COPD, severe COPD, is at risk for pseudomonas, but they're not at risk for MRSA. So why should we treat them so broadly? The current recommendations really don't distinguish that. There, is new, there are new guidelines on the way, and we should probably see them within the next six months. And the hope is there is a little better differentiation of these patients and a narrower spectrum of therapy for most of these patients. Most of these patients do not require such broad-spectrum antimicrobial therapy. The current recommendations are... If you have a hospital-associated pneumonia or a patient with risk factors for resistant pathogen, but the risk factors for resistant pathogens were the ones that I showed you, we treat them broadly. But I want you to understand there is significant controversy behind this. It's not born out of true science. It's an extrapolation from different set of patients that have some characteristics with the other group. And hence, we treat them broadly. Not everybody from a nursing home or long-term care facility requires such broad therapy. Look at the severity of the condition. Certainly, if the patient is going ICU, they're very sick, they need to be intubated, we treat them broadly. But we don't need to treat them broadly just because we see a little cough and a little small infiltrate on the lung. They don't, they don't need to be treated so broadly. The microbiology of community acquired pneumonia is also very interesting. Majority of the time, actually, no matter how you do it, no matter what test you do, blood, or, you know, swab every orifice of their body, 60% of the time you have no pathogens. Viruses are commonly found. Rhinoviruses and influenza, actually there's a study just came out about last month that even questions the role of rhinoviruses. Just because we find an organism doesn't necessarily mean it's the pathogen. Many asymptomatic patients... Actually, individuals carry rhinoviruses and doesn't necessarily mean it's a pathogen. Influenza, we kind of believe it's a pathogen because majority of patients of have influenza have symptoms. Bacteria, strep pneumonia, are very common. Bacteria and viral pathogens can coexist. Atypical pathogens are somewhat rare as well. When we talk about atypicals, we're talking about mycoplasma, Legionella, and chlamydophila. All right, And from all of those, mycoplasma and Legionella probably are the most common, and between the two, probably mycoplasma will be number one. For ICU patients, we treat them a little broadly. ICU patients mean patients in septic shock. We cover for strep pneumoniae, Staph RS, and Enterobacteriaceae. Even though Staph RS is not a common pathogen in general, we oftentimes see Staph slash MRSA seen in sicker patients. There was a study done in EDs, 627 patients, and the prevalence of MRSA was about 2.4%. But almost all of those patients wanting that they had in common, they were sicker. So for sicker patients, i.e. ICU patients, not because they're sick that they're being admitted to the hospital, but when they're going to ICU, we cover more broadly, specifically covering MRSA. There are various prognostic models, and I don't want to go into detail about these prognostic models because you all have heard of them, and we, the truth is that we don't use them often. But I want to quickly talk about these because you have to have some basic understanding of this prognostic model for us to talk about the later on studies. There's a prognostic model called pneumonia severity index. These, these, this prognostic model uh, identifies patients at low risk. There's the CURB-65. This one identifies patients at higher risk, and certainly... There are many other things that we think about in terms of uh, disposition decision-making that's not always based on mortality. So with respect to PSI, it's dependent on all those variables. I'm sure all of you have memorized this, right? You guys all know this by heart? Yes, sure you do. Nobody knows this, right? So if you want to figure this out, this is on the web. You go in there, you put in your numbers, and you figure out what the PSI score is. And based on the scoring, there's a mortality associated with it. But our disposition decision-making is not solely based on mortality. Certainly that plays a factor, but certainly it's not purely based on what the mortality is. There's so many other factors that goes into our disposition decision-making. But you can see that patients who have a low PSI score, they have a lower mortality, hence outpatient uh, therapy is advocated. And this has been studied in various other models, and it works. It certainly works. But again, understand, all of these have limitations. But a lot of patients fall into this category, especially PSI-3 when we admit them. And we'll talk about this. Remember this PSI-3, what the mortality is, and what the recommendations are, that basically you can observe them if they want, but they can also be treated as an outpatient. The curb score is obviously is a little bit easier because has less variables. And again, it's based on the mortality and disposition uh, decisions are made from these mortality numbers. And you can see most of uh, our studies that we're going to talk about fall into the curb one, uh, one to two, majority of them in one. So what are the recommended therapies? How should we treat pneumonia? The current guidelines basically recommend that if you have no comorbidities and no antibiotics for the last three months, we treat with newer generation macrolides. No comorbidities, we only think about two comorbidities, CHF and COPD. Why do we concern about this? Because with CHF and COPD, we oftentimes have gram negatives as copathogens to strep pneumonia. So we use macrolides. You can use any one of them. I don't recommend erythromycin for patients who are smokers. Smokers oftentimes have haemophilus influenzae as a co-pathogen to strep pneumoniae, and erythromycin does not work on haemophilus influenzae. So we stay away from erythromycin for smokers. If the patient has CHF or COPD or have had antibiotics in the last three months, we cover a little bit more gram-negatives and hence you have your choices over there. Respiratory fluoroquinolones are oftentimes used in this category, mainly because they're one pill, once a day it's easier, but you have other choices as well uh, of oral beta-lactams with a macrolide as well that you can use. For patients who are being admitted to the hospital, we usually use a beta-lactam with a macrolide, and you can use any of those uh, beta-lactams, certainly the one one that's commonly used is cestriaxone. If the patient is admitted to a hospital that that they're admitted in a non-ICU setting, You can use, instead of the beta-lactam, macrolide, a fluoroquinolone. However, a common practice that I see is people use beta-lactam with a fluoroquinolone in this setting. And there is no reason to do that. We do not use beta-lactams with a fluoroquinolone in non-ICU setting. If you want to use fluoroquinolone, just use it by itself. No need to add a beta-lactam. If you're using beta-lactam alone, typically the recommendation is to add a macrolide at this point, point, mainly for the atypical coverage. There's also many other drugs that have been advocated, but these are the most commonly used drugs, and we'll talk about other drugs that have FDA-approved indication for community-acquired pneumonia as well. Now, this is the hot topic. So, there has been debate with respect to, do we even need to use a macrolide? Should we use macrolide at all? Well, based on microbiological data, the prevalence of atypical organisms is very low, less than 5% of the time. Less than 5% of the time, we have atypical pathogens. On the latest uh, study that I showed, it's a small number of the of the times that we will find atypical pathogens. And remember, these studies have been done very well. They've done every serologic testing, every culture testing that's possibly known to mankind, which most of you cannot even do 10% of that in your clinical practice. This study looked at beta-lactam versus beta-lactam versus uh, beta-lactam and a macrolide versus fluoroquinolone. Strep pneumonia in this this study was... um, grown about 16%, and atypical pathogens were 2%. A big limitation of this study is that one of the major, major benefits of the macrolides have been shown in terms of reducing mortality. When you look, there's preponderance of evidence in various forms and shapes and forms that you'll see that shows that macrolides for patients at higher level of mortality Provide some benefit. And this is specifically shown. In ICU patients. So if you want to want to study. The role of macrolides. It doesn't make sense. For you to study it in patients that have low mortality. It's not going to show any difference. The outcomes are going to be the same. Here the median curve score. Was one. Remember on our scale. One was really on top. Very low mortality. And your PSI score was 85. That's a. PSI of three, that two choices. You can even send them home if you want to. Or in brief observation. The 90-day mortality amongst the group was very similar. Risk of death compared to beta, beta-lactam monotherapy was 2% higher with beta-lactam macrolide and 0.6% lower with fluoroquinolones. However, a big criticism of this study is that 40% of patients, 40% of patients in the beta-lactam alone arm. Got some kind of an atypical coverage before enrollment into the study. That really, really impacts a lot of uh, a lot of our analysis, because a lot of patients at some point or another, 40% in the beta lactam alone arm, got some kind of an atypical coverage before enrollment or after enrollment in the study, because physicians felt it was needed to be given. This study does not show any superiority of the fluoroquinolones over. Uh, beta-lactam or macrolide combination and the median length of hospital stay was six days. This study is out there and has gotten a lot of press that maybe we can use beta-lactams alone. And maybe at the end of the day the answer may be yes, right, but for patients who are not that sick, probably it doesn't make a difference. Why? Because the, beta, the macrolide rule is really in terms of its anti-inflammatory effects in terms of decreasing mortality and the effect will be more pronounced in patients who are sicker. Now, such cool, another cool study. This is really cool. I get excited about stuff like this. Like, I need to get alive. This is ridiculous. This is not right. All right? So, this one is beta lactam versus beta lactam macrolide. Now, here they did not look at mortality. All right? The curve score was a little bit higher, greater than 2, greater than or equal to 2. The PSI score was about the same. Here, their main outcome was not reaching clinical stability at day 7. And here, actually, it showed that beta lactam macrolide combination, actually, these patients achieved clinical stability much faster, much earlier than patients with beta-lactam alone. Delayed clinical st- stability with monotherapy was seen in patients with infected with atypical organisms, which, hello, it'll make sense, right? And the next one, which is basically the, what I'm saying to you, is patients with high PSI scores, so with the high PSI scores, macrolides probably have some advantage. For patients with low PSI score, less likely to die, probably doesn't make sense. It doesn't make a difference. So for ICU players, with ICU players, we have choices, um, and we'll talk about that. Probably for ICU players, it's good to add a macrolide, mainly not because of its antibacterial effects, but rather because of its anti-inflammatory effects. So a lot of, there's a lot of information out there about azithromycin. And there was a study out in the New England Journal of Medicine not that long ago that basically said for patients who are taking azithromycin, there's higher risk of cardiovascular death. The problem with that study was that, well, they, looked at, they didn't look at patients that actually took azithromycin. They looked at patients that got a prescription for azithromycin. Well, many of you know that many patients don't take their, their prescriptions, anyways. But they only looked at patients who got a prescription of azithromycin, and they did not look at why they got the azithromycin. That study showed that patients that got an azithromycin prescription for whatever reason it was had a higher rate of cardiovascular death and arrhythmias. That study, obviously, has been criticized for the reasons I told you. There's a recent study that came out that looked at azithromycin mortality and cardiovascular events specifically in patients who have taken a dose, at least one dose, and they were given for their pneumonia. This is a retrospective court study, large number of patients. These are patients over 65 years of age with hospitalized with pneumonia. And this is a good group to really look at because these are the patients that often end up having higher mortality. This study showed that patients that took azithromycin had a lower probability of 30-day and 90-day mortality they had an increase in probability of non-fatal MI. This is important for you to know, 3%. Increase in probability of non-fatal MI. There was a less chance of heart failure, but overall there were no differences in cardiac events and arrhythmia general. The number number needed to treat, to prevent, one death at 90 days was 21. Number needed to harm was 144 for MI. So the net benefit was seven deaths averted for one non-fatal MI. So this is another study, even though it's somewhat retrospective, but it's a very, very large number of patients that probably for sicker patients, probably for sicker patients, macrolide do provide some mortality benefit. If you really are worried about cardiovascular effects of azithromycin, Typically, typically, that's not, and actually has been shown in a paper in the Journal of Medicine not that long ago that we're not really concerned about the cardiac effects in younger patients and certainly in patients who are not predisposed to any cardiac events and they're not on any arrhythmogenic drugs and things like that. So, for ICU players, for ICU players, and this is another area, you may have come to my other other uh, ID and antibiotic lectures, I'm very much against using routine anti-pseudomonal agents. And even in ICU players, you do not need to institute anti-pseudomonal agents all the time, especially if your patient is really not at risk for it. So if they are not immunosuppressed, they haven't had recent hospitalization, there's no bronchiectasis, we don't need to routinely give a tested agent. Keep it, keep it uh, the same. Do not use fluoroquinolones in these patients alone by themselves. We use it with a beta-lactam, but the better choice probably, probably between the two, maybe beta-lactams with a macrolide, mainly because of this mortality benefit. But either one of them probably will be fine at the end of the day. Remember, we see staff with sicker patients, so we add empiric therapy to vancomycin. Just for you guys to know, by the way, vancomycin is not a good drug for pneumonia. At all. We use this all the time. It's not a really good drug. Mancomycin has, it's a large molecule, and it doesn't really penetrate the alveolar lining fluid area very well. It's what's called an ALF. It doesn't really penetrate that because it's a large molecule. And because of that, the level that's in the alveolar lining fluid is only one sixth of what's in your plasma. Not the best agent. Not the best agent. But currently, we don't have that many great agents that we actually can use or as, as widely available. But And there's no preference. The American uh, guidelines do not really put preference over... For example, vancomycin and linazolid, Canadian guidelines are a little bit more uh, um, clear. They they prefer linazolid over vancomycin, mainly because of the reasons that I said. But with American guidelines, there is really no specific preference made. But I just want you guys to know that in in general, uh, vancomycin is not the best drug in this instance. But we don't have many good choices. For patients who have pseudomonal risk factors, we certainly cover for pseudomonas, and hopefully by the time your cultures come back, something comes back, we... Go ahead and, and uh, narrow the spectrum of therapy. When should you cover MRSA? Basically, there's only one indication if your patient is going to ICU. There is many other many other uh, uh, criteria has been advocated, and you can see that here. It's all these uh, green, green uh, stars here. But one thing that all of these should have in common is that these patients are sick. Just because your patient says I had a cold last week and doctor told me I have influenza and they come in with a pneumonia, that does not mean that you need to start anti-MRSA therapy on these patients. If they are sick and they're going to ICU, absolutely. But if they're not sick, you do not need to do that. Just because your patient says, you know, I think I had a skin infection about two months ago, that does not mean your patient needs to be on anti-MRSA therapy. Actually, the most common organism post-influenza is strep pneumonia still. So, one thing that all of this should have in common is the severe illness. Then, then, if it has severe illness, and these on top of it, absolutely higher risk, much higher risk that you may be dealing with MRSA. But in the big picture, remember, in the big picture, the prevalence of MRSA pneumonia is less than 5%. Some quick pearls on drugs. Erdapenem is a carbapenem. You remember, we have four carbapenems. Erdapenem, meropenem, Imipenem, and doripenum. Erdapenem does not cover pseudomonas. The rest of the carbapenems do. None of the carbapenems cover atypicals. For example, we think about Legionella with ICU patients. Hence, you need to add an atypical coverage. I see this happening all the time. ICU players get piptazo, which has anti-pseudomonal activity, plus VANCO, which has anti-MRSA therapy, and they get admitted to ICU. Well, we haven't really covered Legionella. It does not have atypical coverage. Ceftaroline has an FDA-approved indication for community-acquired pneumonia. But remember, ceftarolin, even though it has anti-MRSA activity, it does not have FDA-approved indication for MRSA pneumonia. So if you suspect MRSA, you need to add another agent. And even though it's a gram-negative agent, it does not cover pseudomonas. Remember, linazolid does not cover gram-negatives. We typically do not use tigacyclin. Certainly, we don't use it in the secret patients because of the reports of high, high all-cause mortality. Uh telitromycin has reports of hepatotoxicity and I included daptomycin here is because oftentimes I see people use daptomycin for MRSA infections, including MRSA pneumonia. Daptomycin does not Does not have an FDA approved indication for pneumonia And it does not work for pneumonia Because surfactant uh, basically destroys daptomycin Inhibits daptomycin's activity So we don't use for pneumonia So even though we use for MRSA bacteremia We don't use for MRSA pneumonia It does not work for that I see that commonly done But not for pneumonia You should not be doing it for pneumonia All right, perfectly on time So, take-home points. Avoid routine empiric use of anticepidomonal patients in your ICU patients with community-acquired pneumonia. If they don't have risk, stay away from anticepidomonal agent. Do not use fluoroquinolones by themselves in ICU patients. They can be used by themselves in non-ICU patients. Remember, in non-ICU patients, there's no reason for you to give beta-lactam and a fluoroquinolone. Just beta-lactam with a macrolide or a fluoroquinolone by themselves should be okay. And for empiric MRSA coverage, we only think about it in ICU players. Otherwise, do not routinely give vancomycin. Thank you so much. Hope you learned one or two things. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming. Thank you.